This is 103.5 WNHH Community Radio. You're listening to The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging into stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. Today's show is a conversation about Passover, privilege, social justice, and so much more. I'm joined by Lucy Gelman of the Kitchen Sink Podcast and the Arts Paper of Greater New Haven. We're two Jews of European descent talking about our complicated relationship to Judaism and the importance of telling the Passover liberation story. We also dig into white privilege, the Jewish art of questioning everything, our commitment to transformational social justice, and of course, food. The holiday of Passover commemorates the Jewish people's exodus from slavery in Egypt. Jews around the world gather together for a special meal and conduct the rituals of the Seder, where we read the story of enslavement and freedom, eat symbolic foods, and as is our nature, ask many questions. I invited Lucy to join me today because while we share so much in common through work and culture, we rarely make time to dig into our own stories, and this seemed like the right time to do just that. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Tegan. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. So, Passover is coming. It is, like a freight train. (laughs) And I'm sort of curious, how does Passover affect you each year? What kinds of things do you start thinking about when Passover approaches? Yeah, um, it's a great question because I think it's changed a lot as I've gotten older. So Passover was always in our family the holiday that we flew to St. Louis. And my dad's from St. Louis, and we would fly there to celebrate it with my grandparents. Um, my mom's parents died when I was very young, and she is from a Catholic family of four sisters, and my dad is from a Jewish family, so he's one of three, but I was raised Jewish. And we would fly there and celebrate with my grandparents, and so when I was a kid, it was like when you got to see Nani and Papa, and I didn't totally get the Passover thing as a very young kid. Um, I understood the ritual of it, but I don't think I associated everything else that was going on with the story. And then when I got a little older, so not old, but like four or five, yeah. six, and was going to Hebrew school, we did a Seder there too. And both my teacher, who I remember, I loved her. Her name was Wendy Newman. And my mom really talked about how Passover was kind of two things to them. It was a story of rebirth because we were in the spring but it was also a story of um, people who had faced um, an incredible trial and then were in exile and, um, and escaped to freedom. And what that meant, as far as someone reading that story, um, sort of understanding the social obligations that go along with it, as someone who now is free. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I think as I started getting older, I started thinking about that more. Yeah. Yeah, it's so interesting for me also when Passover comes around, like, you know, it's a story of Jews escaping Egypt yes. thousands of years ago and, and escaping slavery. But my grandparents are um, Holocaust survivors on my mom's side. And so... Um, both of them uh, were, they met in a death mm-hmm. camp in Sobibor in, in Poland during World War II, um, both Jewish, and they actually fell in love there and then um, were part of a uprising, of a revolt, and they escaped into the woods and then went into hiding for nine months and then, you know, amazingly, like, lived and then made their way back uh, eventually to Holland where my grandmother was from and then um, had my m- they had a baby who died mm-hmm. um, in that 
in that journey. And then they had my mom and her brother born in Holland. And then when my mom was six, they moved to Israel. And then when she was like 11 or 12, they immigrated to America. And so this personal story, I grew up with them living 20 minutes away from me. And I grew up with them and I grew up knew, knowing their story mm. because it was, um, there was like a, a TV movie made called Escape from Sobibor. And it was like on ABC when we were a kid. And so, um, you know, it was a story I grew up knowing. So for me, I also always felt this very personal connection mm -hmm. to um, this personal enslavement and genocide um, in my family. And so when I would read the story, I'd also think about that and remember all the rest of the family was killed, basically. My, my grandmother and her brother survived, but like everyone else in her family was killed. And uh, my, gr my grandfather, his entire family was mm. killed. Um, and so I think about that. But then at the same time, like I live in a multiracial, multicultural community. Um, my family, my husband is black, my kids are mixed. Like he's also part Native American. And the community that I live in is, you know, filled with a lot of different people who also have experienced slavery and genocide yes. through their lives. And, and so it's so prominent for me when I, when Passover comes, that I am never thinking just about Jewish genocide and slavery, but yes. slavery and genocide for all people. I, th I think absolutely that's true. And the older I've gotten, and I, I think there's some version of this in every Hag every Passover Haggadah. Um, Which is the book the that book, we yeah. follow for Seder in case people um, don't know. Yeah. But it's, um, it's, Usually there's, you know, there's a line that's like next year in Israel, but then there's a line that says, remember that as we are free, there are people who are still in slavery. Or, or I grew up, I think that, that that exists in every, every single version. I would hope so. Mm -hmm. um, but when I grew up and, and that line uh, came up in the Haggadah, it was always like, it, it never didn't pack a punch. Um, because you've had this wonderful meal and we always, I remember we brought out like the fine China and it, it was a big deal. Mm -hmm. Um, and then at, at the end, it's this reminder, um, where you slow down and you think how, like, how can I help the world? Mm -hmm. Um, which is a big part of Judaism. Yeah. And sort of as, as someone who recognizes their privilege and I know that, that's something that you and I talk about all the time. How can I be helping? Because there's also so much happening in the world. Right. Um, and sometimes it feels a little overwhelming. Yeah. Well, I definitely want to jump into yeah. that, but I have to address this one piece of the line of next year in Israel. Like, I have such issues with Israel. Oh, my gosh, Israel. me too. <laughs> so, oh, my gosh. Like, you know, on one hand, like my first feeling about Israel growing up was really complicated because yep. my grandmother was like a Zionist and I and I understood how like as someone who was literally almost killed and persecuted she saw Israel as this place that was a place to be safe and to not be persecuted but for me growing up all I saw was the injustice and the yes. persecution that it, that happens because of the existence of, of Israel and because of how Palestinians are treated and sort of this crazy you know, I see it as this very reactionary thing of like peace, people who are traumatized and who try to really like grasp onto whatever way they can to survive and in turn end up like turning that oppression on other people without even really seeing it or acknowledging it because they're so concerned for their own lives. And it's so complicated because at this point, like many Jews have a lot of 
economic wealth, have yes. white privilege, um, you know, European Jews of European descent. There's many Jews who don't have white privilege, but, um, you know, it's really complicated. And so I like bristle at that every year. It, yeah, it's incredibly complicated. And I think it's something that as a kid, that line went down pretty easily. My grandfather fought in World War II, but he never wanted to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew that he had been injured in the Battle of Remagen, and I knew that he had gone home after that point. But he, I mean, it, it was something that like he didn't really want to talk about except for, you know, little anecdotes like he ate peanut butter for the first time in the army and, and stuff like that. Um, but I do remember as I got older, we got in huge fights when we would visit, um, because of Israel. Mm -hmm. So I would say my, my dad's brother, um, and my grandfather before he passed away, um, both huge Zionists in, in sort of the, the like just pro Israel terminology of the word. And it was something that became very, very contentious until my parents sort of said, just don't, like, this is something we don't talk about. You you know, it's a form of disrespecting your elders, so don't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is something that I also feel very complicated about. And I, I think you hit the issue on the head when it's, um, we see in a lot of cultures the sort of am- amazing and scary ability of a people to forget that they have endured so much pain Mm -hmm. and then enact or inflict that pain on on other people yeah yeah absolutely um i you know to add to this complication i have family now there's been now there's now extended family who lives there um and i went there many years ago because i sort of felt like i needed to meet this family because i had so little family and i felt at the time this was like in the mid 90s after I graduated college and I felt at the time like even just going to Israel was supporting this injustice mm. of, of what happened there but I also really needed to connect with family and and I had this incredible experience there which was like seeing a lot of people who looked like me like growing up in New Haven in like a, a city that is primary is predominantly people of color like it's it's like 60 percent black and Latinx and 30 percent white um and going to public school here, like that, I didn't have very, no, very many people who mm-hmm. were Jewish. And there was a few of us and none, nobody was re- really religious. And, um, and so this experience of going there and feeling like, wow, oh my God, there's so many people who look like me and just kind of connecting with the culture and religion in a way that I never had related to before kind of there was some real personal healing for me in terms of yeah. like this internalized anti-Semitism that I had from growing up here Mm. where I realized being there that I like had um this idea of what it was to be Jewish in America was actually very negative for me Mm -hmm. and that it was like people thought of Jews as being like stingy and being kind of the devil's advocate and being kind of uh more right wing in terms of like the conservative visible orthodox Jews and so and then I there were also these very liberal um activists who like sort of rejected Judaism altogether and so there was a lot of healing that came from me and like going to Israel which only complicated my feeling oh it's so complicated of of that as a place well and I'm so you know if we have time I'd be so interested to hear your thoughts because there's been a renewed spike in anti-Semitism. Um, right. And there is kind of this whole interesting discussion happening now that I'm still wrapping my 
my mind around um where jews are jews are seen as um completely assimilated or i should say jews of european origin in the u.s and just white like ethnically white for all intents and purposes um but there are also now people saying no you you forget that jews are an ethnic group Mm -hmm. and i think um with reporting of you know a spike in anti-semitic activities um it's it's been a moment for me to sort of sit down and say wait i you know i i thought i had my mind totally wrapped around this and um what this part of me was and i actually don't i don't Mm -hmm. think i do in terms of the struggle of it being both white and being jewish yeah Um, yeah yeah i mean to me it's a yes and like yes i completely benefit from white privilege in Mm -hmm. this country yes like i now have economic privilege because in being you know the second generation you know growing up here and having a family that appeared as white like my mother and you know people were able to save money and have jobs that paid them Mm -hmm. enough and so i now have economic privilege that many people of color who came to this country as immigrants at the same time don't necessarily exactly so and i can pass sort of as (laughs) if i don't talk too much as you know as just a white american people don't know what religion i am and so that is true and I have experienced anti-Semitism mm-hmm. in my life many times. And yeah. it is real that Jews are killed for being Jews and white nationalists in this country and other country, you know, attack Jews. And so are we as um, victimized as people who are visibly other? Like if you're black or brown or don't speak English as a first language or, or if you're Muslim or other, you know, no, we're not as victimized, but I don't. I don't see it as like a one or the other. Right. It's absolutely a yes and, you know. Yeah, so, I, yeah. I, I agree with that. Yeah. So this thing you were starting to talk about around social justice and yes. Passover and this sort of, um, you know, charge in within Judaism to repair the world and mm-hmm. what does that look like? How, how did you grow up thinking about that? Yeah, um, well, I would say, so I, I grew up, kind of in a mixed religion household, although we were raised Jewish. Um, and it was only when I, I went to Jewish camp for one summer as a kid, and it was only when I got there when there were people who were conservative and Orthodox Jews, women, who said, oh, you're not really Jewish because your mom isn't Jewish. And for me, it, it was like I was being raised Jewish. I had gone to Hebrew school as a kid. I had other kids who were from mixed religious backgrounds. And so it it was kind of confusing to me. Um, But I would say with Judaism more generally, so not just Passover, my mom, who was not raised Jewish, was always the one who said, you have to take your religion as a charge to help other people. And so she was, I always had a Sadaka box as a kid. um, Explain what that is. um, So it's like a little box for charity. Um, and felt super complicated the more I learned because ours were the little ones with the Israeli flag. Mm. Um, but tzedakah doesn't actually mean charity. Tzedakah means justice. Yes. And so it often gets interpreted as charity, but the real intention is about is about supporting justice yes. and equity. So. And so we um, we were raised being told, you know, you you are privileged. We were very lucky um so i was raised in a home that my parents owned my brother and i went to private school and we were always reminded that we were very very lucky and we had a responsibility to help people who were 
not as lucky. And I think it also has to do with the fact that my mom was raised um, in Detroit, on the west side of Detroit. She was 10 when the riots happened. Her parents were both like, they were both librarians. They were both pro, like very pro-union. Um, and so she had a, a strong social justice slant when she was growing up and I think wanted to pass that mm. on to us. Um, and and then we were also told, you know, remember that sl- like slavery is not a historical vestige of of the past. Like it still happens and right. human, tra- human trafficking still happens. And even as a kid, I remember being told like, this like slavery is happening all around you. It's not just in another right. country. Um, yeah. And I'm like, I'm grateful because I feel like my parents made me very aware of that. Yeah. Do you talk about that at the Passover table? Um, I did as I got older. Mm-hmm. It it was something that I mean I I would say with my dad's parents, my grandparents, and sort of that side of the family. Um, it's, I mean, it's interesting because my parents are like sort of low on the religious ritual, high on the social justice and, um, Passover with the, we, we say Galmania (laughs) was always a a little more, um, like, like high on the ritual, a little lower on the justice and, and not talking about that. Um, but as I attended Seder's when I was in college, so I went to a college where there were a lot of Jewish kids, Wash U. Um, and then after college, I was sort of introduced to the constant questioning mm-hmm. that I think is, is very endemic to Judaism, generally speaking. Um, and then people saying, you know, how, how are we relating this to what's going on today? And all of a sudden it was like, yes, this, this story of liberation is so relevant yeah, absolutely. The questioning thing is is great because it's such a part of European Jewish talking yes. style <laughs> and it is the core of Passover. So yes. at Passover, we a core part of the Seder is to have the youngest child ask these four questions yeah. about why is this night different than all other nights and why do we eat matzah and why do we recline and why do we dip? So these rituals that are part of the Seder and the remembering of, of escaping slavery and then there's this other part where we talk about these children who have these different styles of questioning and the the ignorant I forget what they are like the yeah and I think I I took issue sometimes with because in different uh in different I is it Haggadot mm-hmm. yeah um they're referred to by slightly different names but sure. there's always like a naughty child or right. an unruly child and it's just the kid who like they're not a troublemaker right. they just have more questions right and i was always like i'm th- i'm that kid like it's okay to ask why right yeah i mean to me the point is like you're having this conversation about kids who ask questions in different ways right, right? exactly and so i agree like how we <laughs> label those kids is an issue but this whole part of the Seder is about questioning Which and about talking about ways of questioning. And so I think often religion is something that people go to for comfort and for like yes. rules. And something that I, in my sort of healing of my internalized anti-Semitism, which I very much grew up with, um, not culturally, but in terms of the religion, mm-hmm. understanding that there are these things that are inherent in the religion and in the and in the culture about questioning and about it's it's like this endless questioning it's and yes. then writing down like 3000 years of people's questioning and then studying that questioning and so 
part of what was healing for me was as I grew up also with this like real social justice approach to the world and very not religious Jewish. I didn't even go to Hebrew school mm-hmm. or anything. Um, understanding that there were actually these inherent parts of Judaism that promoted social justice in super yes. meaningful ways and promoted constant questioning, not just like following along and following the rules. And those things don't necessarily manifest in the ideal way in the world, right? Like people screw things up (laughs) with societies and people in power screw things up. But as with any religion or system, you know, if you really look into the core of it, there's there can be some real beauty and some real learning. And I came to really appreciate those pieces of kind of inherent promotion of questioning and not just following along. I think that's true. And now, I mean, I, I will say one of the things, I love New Haven for so many reasons, but one of the things I really love about New Haven is that every year I go to this Passover Seder with a friend of mine that his parents do, that they've been doing for years and years and years. Um, and it always rotates at someone's home. But we sit, we sit and we sing, and then we ask questions. I mean, we ask the four questions, but then we'll like puzzle over words and whether the translation of certain words is correct. And there are some like real Hebrew dorks who really get into the nitty gritty of the language. Mm -hmm. Um, And I love that. And it'll go on for like seven hours and you won't even realize that you're in the wee hours of the morning. But I think that's so important to say like, well, and and occasionally we'll then go into questions about, well, what does this passage of the Torah actually mean? Um, and, and the discussion sort of spirals out from there. And I, I remember even within the tradition of questioning, as a kid, um, when I learned that at least to be a Reformed Jew, you didn't have to believe in God and like you could still be Jewish and that was okay. I was just, I mean, my mind was blown mm-hmm. because I went to school. Well, I was one of the only Jewish kids in my school and then my brother came and then there were two and then a friend of mine came and then there were three. Um, but they were all, the kids I went to school with were Christian. And if you don't believe in Jesus, it's it's sort of like game over. Yeah. I had a friend in sixth grade tell me, you're going to go to hell for killing Jesus. I, oh. And I had no idea what she was talking about because yeah. I didn't know anything about I <laughs> Yes. This. I was told I was going to hell as a kid. And it like it was something that actually didn't bother me that much. Um, I think it bothered my parents more than it bothered yeah. me. Um, yeah, but but I remember loving that I could ask questions and that it was like okay to interrupt people if you really weren't okay with something. Right. And yeah, so this is the thing for me like I I love this kind of European Jewish way mm-hmm. and you know now these American uh, Jews of European descent way of kind of interrupting and talking and being really excited all right hands flying it's really hard when I'm interviewing I don't hit the microphone with my (laughs) hands and uh you know to me when I talk like that it's that I'm showing you love because Mm -hmm. I'm like engaged and respecting you and like I'm in it with you like all in like if you say something and I interrupt you and I'm like yes but (laughs) and then as someone who does anti-racist work and who like lives and works in and loves in these very like multiracial spaces, I'm also super aware of for people of color, especially for for black Americans, but for other people of color as well, that me talking in that way as someone who present who is white, um, that 
that is also can be read as like me exhibiting my white privilege and mm-hmm. and my white entitlement, right? Yep. Like I deserve to take up this space. I my, what I have to say is more important than what you have to say because yeah. and that I'm so I can interrupt you and talk over you. And um, and so I really struggle with that because I really try to leave space for people and to not do that because I'm aware of how that ap- affects people who who live in a world that is totally white dominated and where white privilege and yeah. supremacy is very real and affects people for generations in this very negative way. And it's really hard because it's part of my culture mm-hmm. <laughs> to talk that way. And the intention of it is is not that at all. The intention of it is is to be engaged and show love and, and that way. But the difference between the intent of what I'm doing at, coming from my own culture yeah. and the impact on people who have a totally different uh, perception and experience of that is is real. And I, I completely struggle with that. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I also just wish we could, I was thinking about this. I so wish there were a video where we could show listeners that you're like <laughs> gesturing very passionately as you speak. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely think that's true. And I've tried to... Um, I mean, it's, it's also difficult because one thing we haven't talked about is we're both women too. Right. And women are in a, in a way that I've become acutely aware of as a female journalist, women are constantly silenced or told that they talk too much right. or told that they ask too many questions. And so it's a, it's really a tightrope that you walk of, I don't want to interrupt someone. Um, and, and in doing so, um, exhibit my privilege in in maybe a, a way that I wasn't even aware of, but also I, you know, I've been thinking about it in terms of the Me Too movement, um, but I am told to dial it back by men, men in the field, men outside of the field, all the time, right. and I don't specifically think it's a cultural thing, but to a certain degree, I've started realizing how warped that is. Um, and, and before the expectation was, oh, you interrupt too much, you ask too many questions, just, you know, just ap- apologize and, um, and take a step back and, and do your thing. And so I think that also factors into the Absolutely. mix and it, it makes it really complicated. Yeah, it does. I totally grew up feeling that way and being aware that if I was a boy, especially as like a young person, like if I was a boy, people would be seeing me as strong and assertive. um, But instead I was being seen as like being too much. And nosy. And nosy and disrespectful. I was never like actually disrespectful, Mm -hmm. but just taking up too much space. And I was very aware that um, boys were never told those things. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, it's absolutely... It's a tight, it's a tight rope. Yeah. And it's important. And I think naming it and being aware of it and, and also being in communication with people about it is yes. really the way that I, I try as best as possible to, to deal with that. I think that's really important. I mean, one, one question I have for you, Tegan, is that I feel like, um, the current cultural moment, I mean, it's also, I have not been in New Haven for as long as you have. I've been in New Haven for about four and a half years. And um, I feel like I'm finally getting to the point with my work where people are really willing from all, from all sides to have these frank discussions about speech and about the way people talk and about the words that people use, um, both in speech and, and in writing, and how dialogue can be coded. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in a way that I am very grateful for. And so as much as I love to talk and to interrupt and to gesticulate wildly, I also think I take great pleasure in stepping back and listening. And I don't specifically think that's just something that um, you grow up with in, in culturally Jewish households, but I do think it's, it's part of it, not only asking why, but uh, hearing other people out when they try to give you an answer. Mm-hmm. And so your question for me is what? Oh, just have you also observed that, or do you feel like you've just been having those discussions for a very, very long time? Uh, I've definitely been having these discussions for as long as I can remember <laughs> right. because I think um, f- for all the various parts of my life experience, like I grew up being very aware of race and very aware of privilege and very aware of poverty and and of the Holocaust and of slavery and of genocide of Native American peoples and all of the complex history and all that stuff was like in a historical context and in a very personal, like in my life context was just really prevalent. And um, and I was a super, I'm a very empathetic person. And so like I experience suffering in the world, like in this physical, really mm. intense way. And so, um, so yes, I feel like I've been having those conversations and evolving in those conversations for my entire life, as long as I can remember. Um, and I think that, um, in doing community building work so like you know 11 years ago or so I stepped out of the kitchen where I used to cook full-time and I was like I really need to come back to figuring out how to integrate social justice work and food work and so then I started doing a lot more community building work in all these various ways and to me learning how to manifest those values around um, respect for all people and respect for the wisdom that all different people have and kind of not doing top-down implementation and times when I did do that by accident and then mm-hmm. had to be like oh I need to not work that way I need to really be um, listening to other people's stories and responding to what other people are saying and and kind of building really equitable spaces and so I feel like that's the work and learning that I've been doing over the past 11 years is how do we build vibrant community how do we address issues of equity all different kinds of equity um, in meaningful, deep ways, which very much involves valuing other people's stories and listening to yes. other people's stories. Because when we just come in from the outside and try to drop in a solution, we miss it totally. Like it's not transformational. It's usually not effective or meaningful. And um, so, yes, I totally think that yeah. that's very important. And I do think that comes back, in some ways it comes back to Passover because I've also notice that the, like there are 20 million different ways that you can have a Passover Seder and it's exciting to me that we're at this point where I like I have friends who put together their own Haggadot right. I know people who do feminist Passover Seders and so they have oranges on the table um, I know people who do humanist and, and like very social justice uh, focused Passover Seders or who have spirituals at the end of the Seder. Um, and, and so I think not to, not just to bring it back, but to bring it partly back to Passover that I I think acknowledging that there are so many different ways to tell that liberation story is also really exciting. Yeah. And, and just the importance of that we sit down once a year to tell this story. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And the remembering. And, you know, I often think like how powerful it is that we have that ritual as a people and mm. how much I sort of want 
that for other peoples who have gone through this because the power to sit down amongst your people and other and guests and retell the story of suffering and survival and freedom and liberation is really powerful and um, and really transformative. I think I think yes. it can be transformative if people engage in it in, in a meaningful way. And um, yeah, you know, a, a past a story I did last year was actually uh, a, a story on Afro Seder and going up to Soulfire Farm with our dear friends. Um, Leah and Jonah, Leah Peniman and Jonah Vitali Wolf, who who run Soulfire Farm and have an Afro Seder each year, which kind of brings together the story of Black liberation and Harriet Tubman as kind of the the Moses of the Black people who were enslaved, and and kind of following the Jewish um, structure of mm-hmm. a Seder and Moses. Um, leading the Jewish people to freedom and then Harriet Tubman leading black people to freedom. And so um, it's, you know, people can can look back at that story. But I think that that was my first experience. Like I had always hoped like, oh, I hope somebody's doing this. <laughs> and so it was really powerful to be part of that and, and to, um, you know, to be part of that retelling in a, in a different community. Yes. And also it was like Jewish people and black people together and other folks um, but how powerful it is to tell the story of liberation and how that uplifts people and, and the importance there. I think that's true. I remember working, so in, in college, I did slam poetry and worked a little bit with a group, with the other other people on the slam poetry team, worked a little bit with a group called Cultural Leadership, which is a very cool group in St. Louis that brings together Jewish teenagers and black teenagers and does a number of sessions that are like history lessons, but not bo- they're not as boring as just being in school. Um, but but then does a tour around the country and goes to sites of black trauma and sites of Jewish trauma mm. and talks about what, like what is collective memory and how do we make sure that we're supporting each other. And that was the first example that I had seen. Um, so growing up in Detroit, I didn't see anything like that. It doesn't mean it didn't exist. I just wasn't aware of it. Um, and I remember thinking like, this is like, of course, like, of of course this should exist. And this should, there should be chapters in like every single American city because it was such a, a no brainer once someone put it together. But there, you know, there had to be that moment where someone had the foresight to put it together. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, part of what happens with trauma that people go through is that it there's actually this genetic mm-hmm. thing that happens where people, like, there's been studies that have shown that PTSD is actually passed down genetically mm-hmm. through generations. And if you think about the impact over hundreds of years, how that has existed, like within the black community from slavery, but then from Jim Crow, and then with like the prison industrial complex, and then gun violence and all, you know, and for Native American people, so there was this very intentional kind of genocide over hundreds of years and, and destruction of culture and language and community and putting people on reservations and, um, and, you know, I've seen this in my family just in the past, you know, the couple generations that came out of the Holocaust. And um, my my mom, my grandmother, my mother, and myself actually participated in, in this study where they did they 
take your blood and they study it like on a this was at like Mount Sinai in New York oh, but wow. we were part of that study where they were proving the actual genetic um, passing on of PTSD and the markers that that happened to people and so you know part of dealing with PTSD is healing mm-hmm. it it doesn't you know and yes there's this genetic thing that happens but there's also like an emotional and learned piece that comes out of it and so telling the story and and not sometimes people respond to trauma by just like pushing it mm-hmm. aside and moving on yeah. right and you can be functional but you also often there's all this unspoken stuff and all of this ways that that trauma informs you without you knowing it you know that you you're responding to it without realizing it and so i think that talking about it not only in yourself or with like your parents but in community is part of that healing i think that's true yeah yeah so it's important um one thing we haven't talked about is that sort of jump from like trauma into food yeah but <laughs> let's do it right that's and what we do at passover is yeah. we talk about trauma and we eat but but there's also like that's what we do in in judaism too i mean i i feel like a lot of um a, a lot of the food we eat and but also a, a lot of our patterns um I mean, I know survivors, um, unfortunately, fewer and fewer because that generation is... is Holocaust survivors. Yes, yeah. is dying. Um, and I know people who will still hoard food because mm-hmm. there is the constant fear of starvation. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Judaism and, and food is complicated, so let's do it. Yeah, well, and both of you and I work in food yes. also. So you have a show called The Kitchen Sink. I do. And I have The Table Underground. And we both approach food as kind of a love of food and the way that food is this kind of universal connector in a lot of ways and part of kind of valuing different people's stories and food as social justice. And I'm sort of curious, like, how do you think about food and Judaism connection in your life? Um, Complicated. It's so complicated um, because as a kid, I had a just a really um, like good but also messed up relationship with food and had like had an eating disorder as a high schooler um Mm. so complicated (laughs) but also I grew up watching my grandmother cook and I grew up watching her cook traditional um sort of like the the dishes that have become traditional that I think are passed down as eastern European fare and um so brisket for instance she would make over and over again uh and it was like that was one of my grandfather's favorite foods kasha and shells um kugels and uh and and so i sort of wanted to replicate a lot of that and we rarely did at home we would make latkes for passover or for hanukkah sorry um and um and and that was about it we just didn't do a lot of it and so i've become interested in making more of that food now that mm-hmm. I'm cooking by myself. So I, I really started taking the reins in the kitchen in high school and then in college cooked a lot for myself. And then after college was, you know, entirely on my own, didn't have the dining hall open until three in the morning. And so it was like you cooked for yourself or you didn't eat. Mm-hmm. And so I've become interested in learning more about those recipes um, and sort of connecting. My grandmother is is still alive. She's in her nineties, but using food as a way to connect with her and and talk about her childhood and a, and young adulthood in St. Louis and what it was like to grow up cooking in a in really a bustling Jewish family. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I also connected with the food more as a, as a young adult and as and now as a mom and feeling like right. cooking these. And as my grandmother got older, she's also in her 90s and um, and the cooking became more my responsibility. My mom and I share the responsibility. Um, and so feeling like keeping some of those foods alive, like making matzo ball soup yes. and making um, like certain like the haroset, the apple and, mm-hmm. and walnut that mixture that is supposed to be like the mortar between the bricks that we eat to symbolize remember the building of the pyramids and the Jews the enslaved Jews who were doing that um and then I also try to bring in I grew up feeling very connected to the Middle East in a lot of ways because Mm -hmm. my mom had lived there as a kid um and so I also try to bring in that connection of using like date molasses in our haroset sometimes oh that's wonderful um using pomegranates or pomegranate molasses or um, just some foods that kind of are more reminiscent of Middle Eastern food because yeah. I just grew up eating that a lot and feeling connected even though kind of culturally my, or, you know, my family was, my, was born more in Europe. But then because of that time that they lived in the Middle East, I, I feel very right. connected to that. And we had a lot of like art in our home that was Middle Eastern. And so I feel like I love that food actually more yes. than a lot of the <laughs> Eastern European food. And so right. um, trying to kind of bring in those recipes as yeah. well. Yeah. I mean, it's it's funny. So every year, this was a tradition my parents started before um, my brother and I were born. But every year on Christmas Eve, actually, we eat like a huge Middle Eastern spread and it they say it's because it's what Jesus would have eaten mm-hmm. um, which probably sounds irreverent to some people um, but it I mean it's definitely growing up in Detroit we also had those influences because there's a huge huge Middle Eastern community in Dearborn which sort of abuts the city um, yeah so it's I mean that's very interesting. And then also I would say now trying to teach uh, some, so my, my partner's family is not Jewish. Um, and I think like peripherally cool with the fact that I'm Jewish, <laughs> I hope. Um, but, but trying to bring in some of those foods. And this year we've talked about having a Seder. So hopefully we've got a, w- a week to decide. So, um, but hopefully saying, you know, like, it's not just matzo ball soup. I mean, matzo ball soup is great and yeah. very exciting, but there's actually more to to it than that. Sure, yeah. And I think that, um, you know, looking into the symbolism of the different food mm-hmm. on the table is important. I'll post a bunch of recipes of things that yes. I've made in the past and also post a couple reflections that I wrote years ago about, about Passover and slavery, about um, just... PTSD and and people going living through trauma. Um, so I'll I'll post some old reflections and and hopefully write some new ones as yes. well. Um, but yeah, the food the food is important. And you know I'm curious. My family has a crazy sweet tooth, <laughs> and I'm curious. <laughs> does yours? Uh, yes, my mother does. Um, but it, I mean, do you mean just in terms of dishes that we bring to Passover? We or, have usually as many general. desserts as other <laughs> food. And, and I, it comes from the kind of Dutch Jewish part of my family. Oh, and I've sort of been curious that, you know, how much of that had to do with like, was there any connection to kind of the trauma that they went through? Or is it just kind of maybe it's just a Dutch Jewish thing? I don't know. I, I don't know. We always... We, well, growing up and doing Passover with my grandparents, it was always poached pears, which mm. were like a, 
a great treat, but we knew that that's what dessert would be, poached pears. And I do remember uh, going to like big seders that the local Jewish council would have, and they were great fun. Um, but everyone would try to make something with flourless in the title. And I think that scarred me until very recently. Yeah. Because I would, I have eaten so many bad desserts that are like flourless fill in the blank, you know, right. flourless cake or, um, or something made with matzo meal where you could really like taste the matzo meal and it, it wasn't good. Um, but I, I bring macaroons, which I think are pretty yes. safe. Oh my God. So I have an incredible <laughs> macaroon recipe that I got, um, and it was posted a bunch of years ago where you shaved coconut and Ooh. you actually cook it. You cook the egg whites and sugar together and then you fold in the shaved unsweetened coconut, oh, like the coconut amazing. curls, yeah. and you let it sit for a while. So it sort of softens the mm-hmm. coconut and then you bake it. And you can either I do some with lime zest and some you can put a little piece of chocolate on right when they come at it, like dark chocolate when they come out of the oven. <sighs> They are the best macaroons in the yeah, world. Yeah, that sounds So I amazing. will post that. It's a recipe from Alice Medrich, who's like an old school yes. baker. Um, but uh, yeah, that's an amazing recipe. And I have two other desserts. One is a sweet potato chocolate cake. Ooh, and nice. one is an, um, I, th- I think it's a Syrian um, recipe that is an almond cake with lots of cardamom. That's amazing. So oh, that sounds I wonderful. agree. Like the whole matzah meal thing. And like if we're not supposed <laughs> right. to be eat aside from like matzo balls and eating matzah, the whole idea that you would start making other bread type kind, things yeah. out of matzah, which is really just flour. I it's don't kind of prescribe like to any of that. Meat. Yeah. Uh, if it like if you're vegan yeah. and <laughs> you really like you really want like soy sedge or I you know, I've said just like eat meat. It's so it's the same thing. If I yeah. can taste the matzo meal in the cake, I'm not gonna eat it. Yeah. Well Lucy, thank you so much for talking with me oh, about yeah. this whole spectrum of, of stuff. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed this show and want to know more, there's a ton of info at thetableunderground.com. You'll find links to articles on progressive Jewish culture, my favorite holiday recipes, Haggadah editions, human rights abuses in Israel and ways to take action, as well as a link to last year's Afro Seder show. The arts paper that Lucy edits is a daily digital newspaper and quarterly print paper. Her approach to social justice and the importance of stories have led her to create the new paper, which massively broadens the definition of art to include the full racial, economic, and creative diversity of our region. By illuminating stories of people whose voices in art are often unseen by the broader community, Lucy is engaging in tikkun olam, the Jewish social justice practice of repairing the world. Take a look at artspaper.org. You can find past episodes of The Table Underground on our website and by podcast. Follow us on social media to stay in the know, and please comment or leave a review to let us know what you think. 